I think you need people around you that care about you more than the work you do, that value you as a human and don't just value your output. When you have those people in your life that care about your health and longevity and just want you for you, a lot of times they're able to tell you like, turn the dial down. You don't need to be at 11 all the time. Hey, welcome to the Delivering Value Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan. And if you're new here, this is a show where I chat with people who lead cross-functional growth teams, not about their wins or their playbooks or their success stories. There's enough of those shows out there. I chat with them about the challenge, adversity, and the hardest parts of the job of being ahead of growth and working at these early stage teams. I am super excited about my guest today, Brendan Hufford. Brendan is the founder of Growth Sprints, which is a SaaS marketing agency. He previously led teams at two other agencies, and he helped Active Campaign grow to $165 million in ARR when he worked in-house there, which is all very impressive. Brendan's very impressive, and so I was excited to have him on the show because from the outside looking in, Brendan seems like one of those people that has all the answers, that has everything figured out, and really never stresses too much. And what I've learned after getting to know him over the last couple of years is how much he struggled managing stress and overwhelm and anxiety that comes when you work at these high growth, early stage companies. I was excited to have him on the show to hear more about that, really to hear his full story and dig into some of the speed bumps he's encountered along the way. Let's hop right into the episode. You have gone on objectively to have an incredible run in tech, but I'm curious to know, how did you get here? Like, how did all this get started for you? What led you into the tech startup world? So I started as a high school teacher because we let 18-year-olds decide what they want to do with their lives. And at 18, I remember sitting at Ithaca College and looking at the course catalog. This is going to date me because I'm sure it's all electronic now, but for me, it was half a phone book. And they give you this big blue book and you open it and you're reading about all these courses and everything. I got to school for freshman year a couple weeks early, like a total nerd. I remember sitting in the cafeteria and just flipping through this book. And in that moment, I decided between one of two life paths. One was being a teacher, which is what I ended up becoming. The other one was being a radio DJ. I was like, yeah, well, this sounds awesome. In retrospect, would have been a great, I think for me and my personality, it would have been perfect. And now in like the short form era that we're in, like kind of strangely applicable too. Absolutely. Because we're also in this cool era of what I call a creator educator. That also has been monumentally beneficial. But I made this decision to go into education and followed that career path as far as I could. I got an advanced degree. I have my master's in educational administration. I was an assistant principal for two years at a high school. Realized that I wanted to spend time with my kids after I got done with work and not these other kids. I realized that like for the privilege of making $45,000 a year and being the lowest paid assistant principal in my state, I know because I looked it up, I would be rewarded with the privilege of, instead of going to my kids' sports games, I would go to my schools that I worked at, their sports games and their events, and just not see my kids at night and things like that. Also had the added benefits of, as I mentioned, really bad pay, an extra 25 pounds around my midsection, Sunday night panic attacks, a really bad relationship with alcohol. It was bad. I kind of realized that the ladder was leaned up against the wrong wall. I had been starting things on the side, creating little blogs and little communities and different things like that, being really active in forums, mostly around Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It was like my passion at the time. 
ended up turning that into a business, learned imports, exports, all this stuff, learned influencer marketing before Instagram existed when it was still like blogging influencer marketing. We didn't even have that word back then. Decided to do something which not a lot of people do in their career, but take one step back to take two steps forward. I've done that twice in my career where I was an assistant principal. I left that school, went to another school to be a teacher because first of all, schools were pumped to hire me because they were like, okay, cool. You're assertive, you know your thing, you know your stuff, and you have leadership experience, and you just wanna be a teacher, perfect. So I did that for a few years. That gave me the escape velocity to leave teaching and go into marketing full-time. Andrew, I had never considered being a full-time marketer, but essentially I sat down at lunch. I had 20, you know, your high school, you have 25 minute nutrition break. I remember I had to go out into my car in the parking lot to call my friend because another teacher was teaching in my classroom at the time because we had too many kids and not enough classrooms. So to go out in the parking lot and I remember on the phone, I'm like, this sucks, it's awful, what am I gonna do? I have to like quit my job, I hate my job, I'm never gonna get escape velocity. He's like, why don't you just quit teaching and go work in marketing? And I'd never considered that, not for a moment. I walked face first into the answer and still missed it. Like I had no concept of that. And in that moment, it was just like this epiphany of, oh wow. I went back in, I ended up on built-in Chicago and just applied for every marketing role that was open. Took all the interviews. Funny enough, I did interview at Active Campaign. didn't get hired, even though I would work there later. But I ended up this small little agency being an SEO specialist. I basically walked into that agency, set down my laptop, spun it around. I was like, here's what I've been doing. Do you want me to do that here? And they were like, oh, we don't have to teach them anything. Perfect. Go. And that was my entry into professional marketing services and starting to work with tech companies. Super cool. And so you've gone on to have worked at agencies, to have worked in-house, to have run your own agency, to have worked as a fractional or interim in-house role now, some of the stuff that you're doing. Has this career path come somewhat naturally to you? Yes and no. I think there's this great Steve Jobs quote about how you can only connect the dots looking backwards. When I look back and connect the dots, yeah, it makes total sense that I would end up doing this in the way that I'm doing it. But looking forward, no, I didn't have any of this planned out. I have throughout my career just thrown an overwhelming volume of work at things. Like when I was teaching and I was trying to get out, I was getting up at 3.30 in the morning because that was my time to work. I tried staying up late. I would drink a full pot of coffee, slam two comically large cups of coffee at like 8 p.m. and then stay up until one in the morning. But I noticed I was like passing out on the ground with my kids. I'd be playing in my kid's bedroom, playing with them on the floor. I would just hear my wife's voice go, really? Really? I go, what? She's like, you're asleep. I'm just like, no, I'm not. She's like, babe, I've been in here for two minutes. And I was like, that's not good. And then what I noticed was when I was getting up super early, that was wonderful. I was fresh. I was giving my best attention and energy to my work. And this is before like the morning routine thing caught on. This is before all the bros were like in on it, right? Before Jocko was posting pictures of his watch on Twitter every day at 4 a.m. or whatever he does. I was just so hungry. I wanted to get out so bad that I was just grinding. And I'm not an advocate for hustle culture. We'll talk today about how I've almost died twice due to hustle culture, but I also can't knock it because it is what worked for me. 
And I love that realization in retrospect, because I think that there's a lot of folks who I chat with who are at the early or mid steps of their journey. And they look at someone like you and they think it's just easy for some people. They have some stuff that I don't have, or they have something figured out that I'll never be able to figure out, or they're just smarter than the rest of us, or they're more lucky, whatever it is. And what's refreshing is to hear you say, hey, none of this really came naturally or easy. I had to really work at it and I wanted it. And that's like an awesome takeaway, I think, for folks listening to this is like, it seems easy when you see the last 5%, but it's all the stuff that you don't see that gets you here. So that's really cool and refreshing to hear. I think I'll add two things to what you said. I think first is I have this wild belief in myself. Whenever I see something being made, I think to myself, I can do that. I don't just listen to podcasts. In 2015, I started my own podcast, interviewing entrepreneurs. I can do all of these things I see people doing. I've tried to communicate to people over time, and I don't think everybody feels that way. I've never felt differently. So I think that's a thing in me. The other thing is I'm also like transparent. Like I'm playing this game on the easiest mode possible, and I like acknowledging that. I am a large human, I am outgoing, I am a upper-class white dude living in the Midwest in the time period we live in. Objectively, I am playing the game on the easiest mode possible. So there is that piece too. But I also think, at least the way I feel about it, is like I am kind of a steward for all of these advantages that I've been given. And part of that is thus being a steward and giving those advantages to as many other people as possible. Dude, I totally understand what you mean. I'm actually curious if anyone was a steward for you. If there's been someone in your life or in your career that has had an outsized impact on your career trajectory. You talked a little bit about the conversation with your friend, but I'm curious to know once you broke into tech, if there was someone like that comes to mind. So I'll be transparent with you. I could probably name like 50 people that have just put me on for no reason where I just feel like a total imposter. And I'm like, this person is paying attention to me. Like, I'm so flattered. I'm so just taken aback. And everybody around you is like, no, 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 you've totally earned it. And you're like, I should not be here right now. This is wild. Just give us one person who comes to mind as you share that face that you're picturing right now. So it's three faces. First is Derek Nelson, who was one of the co-founders at the first agency that I worked at. He is a designer by trade. He is not popular on the internet, but he is an amazing musician, great father, one of the best humans that I've ever known in my life. He's definitely the start of that. Second would be somebody like Benjamin Elias, who I worked with at Active Campaign. He's now at Podia. I think he's the VP of marketing now. He is also one of just the most generous people that I've ever met and really helped me understand what it meant to move in the world. I've always been very outward. I love making a lot of media and doing a lot of things very publicly, big audience type of thing. And Benjamin is the opposite, but is so thoughtful. The right people pay attention and listen to him. And then I think if I had to add to that, I would say somebody like Jay Akunzo has been a grounding force in my life because I'm very much the like helium filled balloon that every once in a while I need someone to be like, whoa, 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 almost lost you there, buddy. Like just pull me back down to earth because otherwise I would just float away. On top of all of this, I would definitely say my wife. I know she's the tech person, but she has very much like helped me find my ambition. And now the challenge in our dynamic is her helping me tame it, which has just been a wonderful experience in our relationship. So I don't want to not cite her as the genuine catalyst for all of this, for thinking I can do more than be a high school teacher. Love that. So you've got these people, including your wife, which is a lovely shout out, by the way, right? Your biggest teammate, best friend, love that you included her here. 
So you've got these pivotal folks in your life, in your career, rooting for you, showing you some of the inside baseball stuff. You say you're playing it on easy mode, but we know this game ain't easy. And so I'm curious to know, what's one of the early mistakes that you made in this journey? The thing that lives so viscerally in my head is Derek, who I already mentioned, my boss. The Well, not even my boss. I had another boss above me. His name was Jeff Molitor, and he was also amazing. But I remember Derek coming to me, and he just kind of casually goes, what's this? And he points to the company blog and I kind of explained some strategy stuff and what I was doing. He goes, great work. Maybe I could have a look at the things that go on the blog of the company that I own. And I went, oh no, (laughs) this has gone terrible because I just was such a fast starter and I had so many ideas and so many opportunities that I saw that I was just going way too fast. I'd been rewarded so much in my career as a teacher and as an administrator, and even in my client work with just moving really fast. And there are just some people that move a little more thoughtfully. They proofread the emails that they send and things like that, which I don't do. It is a learned behavior for me to proofread and slow down and not start 20 projects at once. That was one of the biggest mistakes I made early on was just starting too much. Objectively, the quality of the work and the craft was not there. Is it really feedback or how does it come about that you sort of get this learning? You said he pulled you aside one day. What did he actually say and what went through your head to figure out what he meant? What he actually said was what I said. Like, maybe I could read the things that go on the blog of the company that I own. And I take a lot of ownership over stuff like I really care about the clients that I work with and the work that I do. We are on the same team and I am as competitive as they come. I want to win all the time. And what it made me think about was that Derek had built his company really thoughtfully and Ted, his other co-founder at that agency. And they built a really thoughtful company. They were really thoughtful about who they hired and what they had people work on and all of these different things. And I was moving really fast and taking a lot of that voice and a lot of that brand that they had built and just muddying the waters, I guess, is the best way to put it. And I was producing content that didn't sound like them, didn't feel like us. Maybe the best way to think of it is too much hustle, not enough heart in it. And because of that, it gave me a lot of thoughts that I still reflect on now. Like, I'll give you an example. Over the last two years, as somebody who is a very fast starter, and is now doing his own thing, I've wanted to start 30 projects. I wanna have three podcasts and six newsletters and five communities and be doing all the marketing things and be running all the experiments and doing all the stuff. Now I just do one thing a year. Lindsay Adams, who co-writes my newsletter with me, just recently was like, hey, this is number 52. That means we've been writing this for a year. And I was like, wouldn't have even noticed. Already just moving way too fast. But now that we've hit a year on that, I'm like, okay, now I have the freedom to like do another thing. And I think a lot of that comes from having worked with Derek and the team at Click early on and just trying to be a lot more thoughtful of like, am I giving this the amount of thought that it deserves to have? I am chronically not an overthinker. I'm in my head for like two snaps and I go. And so I need to rein that in and like be more thoughtful about the work that I do. This episode is presented by AppQs. If you work in product-led growth, you know how important activating and engaging new accounts is. Turning new accounts into active users is critical to your success in a PLG environment and typically why activated accounts 
is a North Star metric for growth teams. It's why my team spent years focused on improving our new user onboarding experience during my time at Wistia and at PostScript. And that's why I'm so excited that AppCues is sponsoring the show. They're just as passionate about helping product-led companies fix their onboarding and their retention as I am. They're the leading product onboarding and adoption platform for web and mobile apps, and they've helped over 1,500 SaaS orgs create exceptional onboarding experiences that convert new users into power users and brand advocates. So if you're looking for help activating more new accounts, head to appcues.com value. They have a free new user onboarding audit, which is done by Romley John. He literally wrote the book on new user onboarding, and he's a close personal friend of mine. For help, head to appcues.com value. This episode is brought to you by Nevatic. We're seeing the next phase of product-led growth emerge right now. The first phase of PLG was all about using your product as a go-to-market tool, basically creating free plans, free trials, or reverse free trials, getting new accounts to sign up, and then layering in retention and upgrade programs. It was a solid playbook. The only challenge is that the product value is hidden behind your signup form, which means that most of your visitors never get to see it. The next phase of PLG is all about leading with product value creating interactive product demos, embedding them on your website, and letting people play with them, click around, and see the value before signing up. This engages way more people, which means more experience that value, more convert to your paid plans, and more become brand advocates. If you're sold on the idea, but not sure where to start, check out Novatic. Their no-code editor makes it easy to create interactive demos, and they're offering a free trial exclusively for delivering value listeners. Go to novatic.com slash value and sign up for a free trial and see for yourself. So I'm sure that there's going to be folks listening to this who are you at this point in your life, right? Moving fast, probably rewarded with the speed of output at some part of their life, whether a previous job or at school or with their family or whatever it is. And now they're getting this feedback. What did you do next? What do you do differently? Andrew, I learned about this thing called buy-in that I've been previously not been aware of, uh, where you like share ideas strategically and talk to people ahead of time and get them excited about it. They call it internal marketing or whatever, where you just get people aligned with you and coming with you instead of being this solo player on the field, realizing that the work that we do is often more similar to soccer than anything else. Soccer is a weird sport just simply because there's a lot of superstars, and yes, they can really matter and help a game. But soccer, traditionally, by its nature, you see this a lot with like big soccer clubs around the world. They want to buy the best athletes. They want the biggest names. But if you look at what actually causes them to lose games, there are specific players that are more likely to lose the ball than others. And if you have even one of those on your team, it doesn't matter how many superstars you have, you will have more turnovers. So soccer, by its nature, is a sport of weakest link. You actually need to fill all the holes and have like the strongest team across the board. And I think my realization of like, it doesn't matter how many shots I take. It doesn't matter how many goals I score. We still can lose if we're not all moving together. And so what actually changes after that? So you have this realization, you get this feedback, causes you to think a little bit differently. For folks who are listening to this that are thinking, shit, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm doing too much. I'm hearing about this idea of alignment. What can they actually do differently from the past? So in the world that I move in now, in specifically in SaaS and software, and I think this applies to companies generally, you know, anybody working professionally in growth or marketing or, or really whatever, is just finding touch points and milestones to share things with people. 
especially if you're like me and you want to share all this stuff publicly. What are you sharing internally that you're excited about? I'm consulting with a company now. We have 69,000 subscribers to their newsletter. And you bet your bottom dollar, as soon as we hit 70K, I'm sending an email out to everybody. I'm going to make that email like a piece of marketing materials internally. And that's what changed after that. Well, it didn't change. That was the seed that was planted that has become what we see now. Just where like, we have to celebrate these things internally. We have to market internally. I want to do the same type of marketing that I'm doing to acquire customers to the other people on my team, adjacent teams, definitely up to leadership. Across the board, I want people to know what I'm working on the results of what we're seeing, what's exciting. There was so much, and again, like you can connect these dots looking backwards. I would always like send cool things to Benjamin when I was at Active Campaign, And he would immediately be like, share that, put it in the channel. And I was like, really? Yes, other people need to see that. You create this momentum. And it's this wave that people can ride on. Like when you're winning and you're doing really well inside of a company, people feed off that energy. How do I get them to be so excited about what I'm thinking about, what I'm seeing? And sometimes it turns into like an internal company newsletter where you're like, hey, I'm sending this email out to these 10 people within the company. I'm going to send it out every single week. And it could just be something simple of like, here's the thing I'm working on. Here's a cool result we're seeing. And here's something neat that I read. And you just send it out and maybe get some feedback on it or something like that. But nobody even knows to do that type of thing. But now that everybody's listening, like now, you know. <laughs> so now, you know, the focus on internal alignment and all the different tools at your disposal, huge part of that future you after that point. As we continue on, one of the things that I hear all the time. So I work with folks all day, every day who work in tech. And what I notice as a pattern is that many folks who work in tech are in these high stress jobs and they feel anxious and on edge and they get the Sunday scaries like you talked about. You talked about it a little bit in your teacher job. I'm curious to know if you've ever gone through an anxious period in your tech career. Yeah. So I left this agency that I have gushed about this whole conversation. I loved this place, but I realized two things. Number one, I wasn't left with a lot of client work that I could write about publicly. I just wasn't convinced that people wanted to know the SEO work that I was doing for like local window washing companies and stuff like that. I was there for a couple of years. I was feeling a little stifled and I realized it was a primarily web design agency and it would never be a marketing agency. My clients would forever be the leftovers of design. They came in for the design stuff then we bolted SEO or paid on top of that engagement. And I got an invitation to join a B2B agency that had clients like Allstate Insurance. Great. Like, I want that. Like, it was a leadership position. It was a chance to lead a team. I remember I had one of the hardest meetings I've ever had. It was a review with my boss and the owners of that first agency. And I was like, hey, look, I love this, but I have to be honest with you all. I'm going to be leaving. But I left this place I love to go to this next agency and I joined that agency in January of 2020. So you could imagine what was coming down the pipeline. So before we knew anything about how the entire world would change, I had signed on for a job where it was already a mess. Before I even started, they told me insurance was fully covered. And then they're like, it's just covered for you. We're not covering your dependents. And I'm like, well, I have a lot of them. So immediately took a huge pay cut. Day one, meeting one, I get into this lead Monday morning leadership team meeting and the owner of the company says, hey, this one guy on the team is underperforming. Why do you think that is? Another guy says, why he thinks it is? And the owner of the company goes, well, that makes sense because that guy can't even get his home life together. And if his home life is a mess, he's not going to be able to put up the numbers here at work. You got to fire him. 
day one meeting one, I'm like, I do not talk about my family here. Never did. Was this someone on your team that you were inheriting or someone? Somebody on a different team. Jeez, but it sets the tone, right? So you're in this new company, kind of on your best behavior. Usually they're on their best behavior, right? So if this is their best behavior, it's more than like your spidey sense is tingling. Probably freaked out. I would have been. Terrified. Right? I'm already like, this might have been a terrible career decision. Before I even started, I looked at my wife. I'm like, I'm going to try to be here a year. We're going to stick it out. Sorry to interrupt you. How big is the company? You don't have to say the name of the company or any names of the coworkers there, but how big is the company? Just to contextualize folks listening to the story. Maybe 50 people, a good sized agency. I think we're at like 5 million in revenue at that point. So I'm inheriting this team. This person they're describing is not on the team, but I'm like, I don't talk about my family here so much so that I did not tell anybody at the company that my wife was pregnant until I asked for PTO to take time off for my son to be born. And they were all like really surprised. Like, why wouldn't you have told us about it? Oh, we didn't know. Oh, sorry. I just, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't fucking trust y'all. That's why I didn't tell you. I didn't fucking trust you. Yeah. I knew you guys would give me the scarlet letter and I'd be screwed. And it was everything culminating, right? I think I would all had a very hard 2020. 2020 was not easy for anybody. But when I joined, it was a team of like very junior people. I remember somebody in a meeting was like, hey, can I take two days off for my college graduation? And I was like, Nicole, you're still in college? She's like, oh, I'm just finishing up a couple classes. Yeah, I'm a senior. I'm like, we're employing college students? What is going on? Like, I had no idea. So then the owner decided we're making a change. We're only having senior people. Everybody here is senior. We're laying off everybody junior. So I had to lay off a bunch of people, which was really hard. And this is still when you're new in the role? Still relatively new? Yep. Then we laid off people for because we lost a bunch of clients because it was early pandemic. Clients were panicking, which was weird because most of our clients were software who saw a huge uptick. But we did lose a lot either out of panic or their industry crash. Like we had somebody who was like restaurant software and like they immediately their revenue went to zero. They were like, we can't work with you all anymore. So all of this stress is happening. The world of politics and civil unrest and justifiably like these things were happening. I remember I was just so stressed. I would come up every single day from work in our basement and my wife would look at me. She'd be like, you get fired today? Didn't get fired today. She's like, great. Every day, every meeting, I thought I was going to get fired. And my anxiety was at such a fever pitch. And my wife was pregnant this whole time. And this was very much a surprise. Medically, that's not how it works for us traditionally. So all of a sudden we have this miracle child, which is wonderful. But you can imagine I have three other boys at home. I'm working in this high stress job in the house. We can't leave. The air can kill us. Everything was this fever pitch. And it culminated in waking up one day with a horrific headache. And I'm trying to keep my job so I can't take any time off. And I got what amounted to a three-day long migraine when on the third day, I remember I woke up in the morning, I had really blurry vision. And I was like, what's up with this? And essentially, if you cover one eye and then cover the other eye or just blink back and forth, you see different things because your eyes are in different spots in your head and your brain just is like magically combines them into one picture. My brain just decided to stop. It was like, you just see two now, overlapping. Everything is double vision. When I requested time off to go hang out with my wife and be a part of the birth of my child, that double vision, driving my wife to the hospital with one hand over one eye so I could see. I can't even imagine that kind of stress, right? Oh, my eyes still don't work properly. And it's from stress. It's from this moment of your career 
when you rev so high that it literally caused permanent damage. If we circle back, is my MO. I put the pedal all the way down. I treat my body like a poorly maintained race car. And I just put the pedal all the way down until I hit the wall going 300 miles an hour. And I think that that is a really important thing. It's a weird thing to balance of like, how much do you put the pedal down and when and what's safe and what gets you ahead in your career versus allowing you to maintain it so you don't need to take an 18 month sabbatical to like decompress from working somewhere that's super high stress. And like, yeah, you were a VP or CMO, but then like you have a terrible relationship with your kids or like your health is permanently ruined. Are these things worth it? Are the questions that we kind of have to answer. So what happens next for you? So you have this really traumatically stressful moment, then what? I knew at that point that I needed to leave. A couple more like really bad things happened and I was looking for a job. That's the other thing that I didn't stack on top of this. This whole time I was looking for a job. And also when you get laid off, it's very easy or you get fired or like whatever. You can very publicly raise your hand and be like, hello, open to work. But if you're still working somewhere and trying to pretend you care, about this horrific company. You kind of have to be quiet. You have to back channel everything and it's all very hush hush. So I was applying to all these jobs, making it to final two at a bunch of them, not getting them. And then finally I landed on an individual contributor position at Active Campaign. And Benjamin was like, hey, the job you applied for, we're not gonna hire you because it's not a good fit. It was like a partner marketing job, but like Andrew, I was taking anything. But he was just, if you can wait a little longer, we want to kind of bring you in and have you be this like growth marketer where you're this glue between different teams. And it was wonderful. I ended up joining there. I didn't make it a full year in that other position. I left at the end of 2020, joined Active Campaign, was able to do great work there because I was able to utilize all of these skills that I had around buy-in, moving quickly. And I also had all of these technical skills from building my own projects. In 2019, the reason I got hired at this second agency was because I did a 100-day project where I made 100 YouTube videos, 100 podcast episodes, and 100 blog posts. Sent out weekly emails and built this thing that got me noticed in the SEO industry. So all of those things culminated in this position at Active Campaign where I could come in and do some of the best work of my life without any of the pressure of managing people. You left. And so for folks listening to this, you sort of have these moments in your life when you need to reevaluate what is the right fit for you. I think a lot of times, it seems like companies get a little bit more leverage where you're trying to sell yourself to a company, but a lot of times you need to reevaluate where you're at, make sure the company's the right fit for you. So that's a great takeaway. And I'm curious to know, how do you stop yourself from doing that again? I don't know, because I did it at Active Campaign again too. I ramped all the way up. Benjamin left. He was a wonderful manager and somebody I considered to be a friend. And he left to go to Podia. I got a new manager who was very much like your typical bad at managerial skills, but good at spreadsheets kind of manager. <laughs> yeah, perfect for a promotion at every company. It was just like being ground into the ground of like, add more, add more, add more. Where are your results? What are the results? What are the results? And that was a big culture shift from what I had previously done where it's like, are we proud of this work? Is this work that we believe will contribute? That sort of thing, especially Active Campaign's $165 million a year company, a marketing team that was as large as the previous full agency that I worked at. The idea of like, what is your blog? How many conversions did your blog get this week? It just became this hyper report 
based culture. Not to dog it, but it was a lot of people looking busy making decks, but nobody actually shipping anything other than like, I'm blocked, they're blocked, everybody's blocking me. And it was a lot of like finger pointing. I really like crabs in a bucket. Nobody could actually get anything done because everybody was too territorial. I think that they have a new CMO, Shea Howe is wonderful. And I think they have a way better culture now. But at that time, it was extremely high stress. And I had gone on a vacation with my family, requested time off, came back and had something scheduled a couple weeks later. My boss was like, you can't leave. You can't take time off. And I was like, why? Huge disaster. He ends up saying like, you are abandoning your job. We are locking you out of everything. And I was like, this is awful. And it was at that point, my wife was like, why do you keep moving the goalposts with doing your own thing? Like I had been working with clients this whole time, Andrew. I remember looking at her and saying, well, when Grossman's makes $500,000 a year, I can quit my job. And she looks at me like, what? Why? You don't even make a hundred in your day job. <laughs> right, right. Why do we need so much money? Like, what are you talking about? She goes, you can quit now. And that's all I needed. And I got back and was like, here's my two weeks. I need to go do my own thing. But I ended up with like another really bad health scare because of that. And to answer your question of like, how do you prevent it from happening again? I think you need people around you that care about you more than the work you do that value you as a human and don't just value your output or your freaking contribution to MRR or some made up things so that we can IPO in six, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. And when you have those people in your life that care about your health and longevity and just want you for you, a lot of times they're able to tell you like, turn the dial down. You don't need to be at 11 all the time. Be at a seven for a season. I love that. And I found the same thing. When you work in tech, a big part of your identity is working in tech. And a big part of working in tech is working at a company that's growing and winning and outdoing itself from before. And that's hard to detach your identity from that success or failure at work. And that's hard to do. You need help from the outside, from people who are in your corner, who love you unconditionally to separate out your personal identity from your work successes or misses. And I have found that to be true as well. So as we start to wrap up here, I'm curious to know, you shared about a couple of the speed bumps in your journey. What's one skill that you wished you prioritized earlier in your career in tech? The thing that I wish I would have spent more time on was less of the hard skills and more of the soft skills of things. Benjamin very much for me was a purveyor of soft skills over hard skills. And he's arguably one of the best hard skill marketers that I know, but he wins and can get things done in a company like at Podia, their product strategy is their marketing strategy. They're that tight between product and marketing. That happens due to a lot of other reasons, right? They have a great founder. They have a great COO, Len Marketing. But that works because Benjamin has the soft skills to work perfectly in line with product. I'm sure you found the same. It's all about the soft skills. Once you get a certain degree of mastery, what I found is as your career progresses, less of your value is the stuff you execute. More of your value is how you set vision and enable others and help them problem solve and communicate up and bring others along in the journey. It's some of the things that you mentioned today and that shit is hard. And it's really hard to learn which of those you need to prioritize unless you have an incredible mentor who will pull you aside once in a while and say, hey, this thing that you just did, you could have done it better. Here's what better looks like. And not every manager or leader at a company is equipped with that skill set or is motivated to help you. And that's hard to find, but I think when you find it, it's super valuable. So thank you for coming on and sharing your stories and some of the challenges and your perspectives here. For folks who are listening to this and want to interact and follow you, where should we send them? How can they engage with you? 
If anything that you've heard today is valuable and you want more of that, I share all of my best advice on LinkedIn every single day. The best way to find me is just literally to Google Brendan Hufford LinkedIn, and you can misspell my name as much as you want. It'll still work because I have a very unique name. I'd like to pretend it's because I'm good at SEO. It's not, but you'll be able to find me there. Perfect. Thanks for coming on, dude. I appreciate jamming with you. Appreciate you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.